0: Father, I, I thank you, Lord, for allowing us to gather here, um, to gather here before you, before your throne. Lord, for us to be able to worship you and sing your praises is a joy to do so. And so, Father, thank you for that that gift and that grace that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, for the people who have shared today, for sharing about missions. Um, and. And the things that you, you do mightily around this world. I thank you, Lord, for the skid team and um and for allowing us to see your um see your mm-hmm. word just come to life as as much as it can. And and Lord, I pray right now that that as we get into your word, that Father, we would just be marveled at it. Um, that Lord our hearts will be humbled by it. And that God we would just before you, listening to you. God, will you speak to us through your word? Would you put upon our hearts your truths so that we may walk righteously before you? Thank you, God, for everyone here. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So, last week I had a movie title for the title of my sermon, Crazy Rich Persians. This week I have another movie title that didn't change at all, called Battle of the Sexes. And thank you for the skit team for leading us to kind of recap what we learned last week. We are going through Esther, and we are going through um, a story, and so part of... What the whole skit is about is to help us set the scene up, to remind us of what we learned the week before, so that way when we get into the scene that we're going to look on look upon this week, um, we're reminded of the context and the setting. And last week, we looked at a king, a king who is rich beyond rich, a king who party like none other, and this king did it all for his own glory. Esther is a story, and like many great stories, um, you need to have some kind of tension. You need to have some kind of conflict, something that that runs throughout the storyline, that the audience is aware of, that the audience knows, that, that is back there, lingering in the back of our heads. Let me give you an example of what this may look like, because this this tension may not be the main central theme, but it's there. For example. I'm going to try to think of something in a story or a movie that you, guys, that you guys are probably most of all are familiar with. So I don't give any spoilers. Let's go with Beauty and the Beast. My favorite, personal favorite Disney movie. I love Beauty and the Beast. The, the Disney animated movie. I refuse to watch the live version just so I keep that memory pure in and intact. <laughs> <laughs> so, in Beauty and the Beast, in the beginning of the movie, they set up the scene. Right? They set up the scene talking about how did this prince become the beast and how did this castle become cursed under this curse. And there's one object left in the story that was vital throughout the entire movie, and that's the one magical rose. The one magical rose where the petals on that rose will start falling off. And the whole point of that object is that when all the petals are gone, That means that curse that's been placed upon that castle remains forever. That the the prince is a beast forever. Now, throughout the entire rest of the movie, that rose is there. But that rose is like never explained or really talked about again. When Belle found a rose, they never even explained to her what it was doing, like why it was there. She has no idea what that rose represents. It's just there. Really, that rose is for the audience's purpose. It's for the audience, for us viewers watching the movie to understand that there is a time constraint, that there is this conflict, there is this tension that's happening. And we, as we're watching the entire movie play out, we, have, we know in the back of our heads that things have to happen fast because of that rose. That's for our purpose. In the same way, the author of Esther is a good storyteller and he wants to set the scene up for us. Tonight, we're not even going to see Esther yet. The main character of the story, we're not even going to bump into her yet. But everything we're doing is setting up a context. Setting up, setting up a tension, a conflict that we're going to view. And this conflict, this tension, is going to play a huge part in the background of why these scenes that happen in Esther, why they're so important. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 1 And we're going to go through verse 10 to 22 Esther chapter 1, verses 10 to 22 And so here, the first thing we're going to look at Is we're going to look at Queen Vashti We were introduced to Queen Vashti in verse 9 She's giving feasts to the woman. <clears throat> this TV has been terrible for the last several weeks. Um, so, just bear with me there. Um, Queen Vashti, we we're introduced to her in verse 9. And now here in verse 10 to 12, we're going to see a bit more about this character. Here's what it says. Verse 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded Mehumen, Bista, Harbona, Biktha, and Abakta, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The king here is married. King here is glad. The king here is happy. This is the seventh day. If you guys don't remember, this is the second feast that we're putting on. The second feast. And the second feast lasted for seven days. So here on the seventh day, we are on the last day of the feast. And the, the heart of the king was merry with wine. This, they've been feasting for seven days and they've been drinking nonstop. And let's be honest, guys, people who People drink because it makes them happy. People drink because it makes them happy. People enjoy drinking because it brings them joy in their hearts. And so after seven days of drinking, this king was happy. And this king was getting all the glory and honor that he craved. He was throwing these feasts left and right, showing off the glamorous palace, showing off the glamorous of his royal throne, of his kingdom, of his riches. And he was gaining all this recognition, gaining all this honor, gaining all this glory. And so to top it all off, he's going to bring out his crown jewel. He's going to bring out his trophy wife. And so he brings and he summons Queen Vashti. Summons her to come out. Come out before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princess her beauty. And here this... This beauty was emphasized. Not only the author said that she had beauty, but she said he emphasized that she was lovely to look at, beautiful to look at. This was, this is, this is the beauty pageant winner. And so here we see that the king wanted to put one last display of glory and honor. That this queen is my wife. See, here we see that this king is all show. This king is all about the show. This king is all about the fluff. But really, he doesn't have the stuff inside. This king is just an outer shell with nothing sustaining him on the inside. This king is like a fountain pen without ink. He's like a Porsche without its engine. Just an exterior, but nothing, nothing inside of any worth. And he wants to demonstrate that. He wants to push out all that because that is really his best side. And so the king here calls over Queen Vashti. But here, here in verse 12, we see Queen Vashti's response. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. She refused. First time we've seen someone refuse the king. And hear all the females in the room clap and say amen. Because she refused to be put out there like an object. This king told her to come here, and Queen Vashti. I mean, I can't imagine her being showing off some kind of sass when the eunuchs came to her. She's probably all like, "Heck no, I ain't coming. You want to come? You want me? You boy? You better come here and give me yourself. Don't send your servants." She refused and rejected the command. Now, the author here, the author here of Esther doesn't really say why. He, he actually, it seems like he doesn't care about why. He doesn't say why she rejected him. We can only really speculate. And after reading several commentaries, this is one that I think probably is not too much out there, probably holds the truest, but again, we're all speculating. But during that time, during feasts, during that time, Whenever there's a feast happening, actually the men and women are usually in the same room. And remember, here, during this feast, the men and the women were separated. The women were having their own party. But typically, they're all in the same room. They're not segregated like that. They're not like a junior high dance. They're, they're, They're all in the same room. And so, here we have them all in the same room. That's typically what happens. And then what happens when the alcohol comes in, when drinks come in after the food... The wives actually leave. And the only woman who stays in the room while the men are drinking are the concubines. Or what we know as like modern day strippers. Or, um, Yeah. And so, and so, what we see here is that there's actually a recognition of status. Right? Women who are wives of the guests, they have status that, that they, they don't belong in the room as pure enjoyment for the guys. They have, they have an honor to uphold, they have a status to uphold, and so they walk out of the room. <clears throat> and yet, here, what we see here is that the king is asking Queen Vashi to come back in while everyone has been drunk for seven days, to come back in to show her beauty as if she was some kind of concubine. And it's as if that he told her to wear her royal crown to to belittle her even more. To put her down even more. To show that, look, this person, this woman coming in, she's royalty. She's your queen. And yet I own her. I am superior to her. She obeys my commands. But we see here that she does not do that. She does not do that. She refused to come to the king's presence. She doesn't obey the king. And in all this, again, the author doesn't really say why, so let's not read too much into this whole thing. The whole point of this whole episode, this, this one decision by the queen to refuse, is to set up for Esther. What happens when Esther comes onto the scene? But what we see here is the first time we see tension in this story. The first time we see conflict in this story. What is this king going to do? How is this king going to respond? Well, let's look at King Ahasuerus' reaction. <clears throat> Verses 12 to 15. Verse 12 says this. At this, at, this, at Queen's refusal, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. Notice how quickly the king's emotions changes. Right. Back in verse 10, he was merry at the heart with wine. Verse 12 happens. He is enraged, filled with anger, burning within him. He is angry that, that his queen refused him, disobeyed him, rejected him. There's a mood shift going on here. And this keen, this keen acts like an immature, like an immature child, like an immature toddler. He, he doesn't know what to do. He can't get what he wants. Right? Like Robin. <laughs> Sorry. What happens when Auggie doesn't doesn't get what he wants? You discipline him. How does he react? He cries. <laughs> he cries. He pouts. He gets mad. Well, he simply doesn't get what he wants. And here, the first, for the very first time, we see here the king not getting what he wants. And he responds immaturely. He gets angry. Here, we're finally beginning to see that shell, that, that, that glorious shell that this king is putting up, being cracked away. And we're starting to see a glimpse of the true king of Hosmeros. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew? Who knew the times? These wise men knew the times. For this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Adam, Adamatha, Tarshish, Tarsish, Meris, Marshena, and Memekan, the seven princes of Persia Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. The king here went to his wise men. He went to his wise man because he didn't know how to deal with his own wife. It says here the wise men here knew the times. <clears throat> knew the times. Now scholars debate about what exactly this means. Some say that it's these wise men knew astrology and they knew how to predict the future based off what they see in the stars. Others say that they just know the land and the culture really well. Whatever it is, these wise men knew how to make decisions. These wise men knew how to make decisions and this king is unable to. This king cannot make his own decisions. This king doesn't even know how to respond to his own wife. He has to go to a group of men to ask for help. What kind of power is that? What kind of leader is that? This king... It says that this is the king's procedure to do that. Meaning he's done this over and over again throughout his reign. He constantly goes to these men and asks for their advice, asks for their help, as if he doesn't know the law, he doesn't know the land, he doesn't know his own people, he doesn't know his own kingdom. The only thing we saw that he knew how to do was throw a party. This king... We see here now that he is truly childish. He gets angry easily. He has huge mood swings. Mood swings. He is lazy. He doesn't know his own laws, and he's indecisive. He can't make his own judgment. Not only that, look at how he asked the wise man for help. Verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered to the eunuchs? Look at this phrase, according to the law. This king's manhood is being threatened And he goes and hides behind the law. What kind of man does that? This man doesn't know how to deal with his own domestic affairs. And so he goes to the law and he says, What does the law say I should do? Does the law have anything to tell me? Are there any rules out there that can help me enforce the fact that she needs to obey me? There's some kind of punishment out there, some kind of rule out there, some kind of law out there that can force her to obey me. What can I do about this? He doesn't even think about just going and simply talking to her. Isn't that what a husband and wife should be doing? And yet sometimes we can do the same thing when we become displeased with someone. Sometimes we turn to rules And say what can what what should we do about this person? What should we do about this person? Isn't there something out there? Some kind of policy at school or some kind of policy at church that says that that this shouldn't be happening? And we turn to rules instead of simply approaching the person and just hash it out like two adults. This king here does not know what to do. He simply hides behind rules, unwilling to face the situation at hand. This king here is being exposed. He's being exposed as someone who cannot lead. Someone who truly has no authority and no power. Someone here who looks, he looks to wise men. He goes to them, he asks them for advice. And in many ways, he's going there to please them. He throws his party for them. He, he gives them as much as they want to drink. And he he goes out there and he's out there to please these men. And now he's going to go to them advice. And most likely, he's just going to simply follow their advice because he is a yes man. He's there to please men. <clears throat> So then how do these wise men counsel this king? Verse 16. Here we see a man named Memucan who speaks up for the group. There's something that Menachem said in the presence of the king's officials, this way he says, not only against the king has Queen Vashi done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashi to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, noble woman of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Here, he speaks up, and he shows really just how dumb these wise men are. He takes this small domestic issue, He takes this small domestic issue, and he makes makes it as if it's it's threatening national security. Look, he says here that this is not only against the king, but it's against all the officials, all the peoples who are in the kingdom. He takes something that's so small, that's a family domestic issue, and he makes this a national crisis. He's so afraid that somebody who saw the queen's behavior, who heard the queen's refusal, somebody was going to tweet this and it was going to go viral. This man was afraid. These wise men were afraid of the feedback of what it would do. What happens if every wife behaves this way? What happens if every wife suddenly disobeys their husband? What happens when that happens? Oh, the shame that will go across the land. You see, these men, these men were no different from the king. These men were looking out for themselves. These men saw what happened to the king, and they're like, we can't have that happen to us. We can't have our honor, our facade of power and authority be broken and cracked. We need our wives to obey us. These men took something so small, something so minute, just a, just a refusal. It could have made them face if they just talked. And they made it into this huge, big deal. I mean, can these men get any dumber? Well, they can. Verse 19. This American still speaking. If it pleased the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it so that it will not be repealed. I mean, just look at what's just, look at what's just been said here. This man is so afraid that everyone, every woman, will know what happened. So his solution to that is make a law, tell it, spread it across the kingdom, let everyone know that all wives should be submissive to the queen, don't be like this queen. His solution is counterproductive. It doesn't make any sense here. I mean, it it just gets dumber. Look, um, this law that says in the middle, verse 19, that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before king of and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she First of all, notice that he stopped using queen in front of Vashti He already took her away from that position But this here I mean queen Vashti what she did, she, she refused to come before the king. She refused to come before the king's presence. So what should we do? Let's make a law that banishes her way from the king's presence forever. Who wins in this fight? It seems like Bash getting everything she wanted here. These men are so dumb. They're so worried about their honor. That, that, their, that their solutions become counterproductive. These, these, these laws, they make no sense. Verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Here we see Here we see the motivation behind why these wise men were saying this. Because they wanted that same honor that the king wanted with his feasts. That same honor, that same glory. But again, this law doesn't make any sense. He wants a law that he's so afraid that, that their wives would we refuse them. We reject them. So he makes a law to force them to honor him. Can you really get honor by forcing someone to honor you? I mean, let me ask the females here: Will you guys honor your your future husbands if they force you to obey them? <laughs> 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 It, it doesn't make any sense. That, that's counterproductive to actually getting honor. You wouldn't respect a man like that. If you're truly going to honor someone, you respect them. There's some value to them. There's a willingness to honor them. Honor is not something that can be forced. Honor is something that can be given. Honor is something that is given. You can't force honor upon yourself. These men, this king and his wise men wise men, they were fools. They they were all man pleasers. They're all yes men. And this king here is a puppet to these wise men. King here could not make his own decisions. This king here. This king here is simply just following whatever these wise men say. They're all fools here. And so verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes. Of course it did. The minute they heard the word "honor," it pleased them. This advice pleased the king and princesses, and the king did as Memem proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. I mean, talking about trying to keep something down low and secret, they sent it out to everyone and even translated it for people who can't understand their own language. This all goes to show the tension that is being built here in this story. All this here setting up the scene for Esther the king here by one simple rejection creates a whole law that banishes the queen away removes her royal authority her royal status and commands all the wives everyone that affects the entire kingdom to obey their husband of one small rejection one small refusal This, this environment, this environment is dangerous. It is always dangerous to give a lot of power to an immature leader. Because a king can do this. He does have that royal authority to do so. Where he, when at a snap of his fingers, things can happen. But he is not a true leader at heart. Because he doesn't know how to make wise decisions. But this is the kind of environment that Esther is going to enter enter into. And though we don't see Esther just yet, we have to be asking the questions. What happens? What happens when Esther enters the royal court? What happens when she comes face to face with this immature king? Will she face the same tension and conflict that Vashti faced? See, the whole point of Queen Vashti here. It's to set up the premise, a set up the background story for Esther. All this foreshadows what's going to happen for the rest of our series. So, then, what can we gain from this short and little snippet from this book? How can this small little portion apply to us today? I have one application point that I want to draw out. And that's our call to be honorable, this true honor, honorable disciple makers. We are all called to be disciple makers. One of the visions of TURF is for you to be out there to be disciple makers, the vision of this church is for you to be out there to be disciple makers. And it's not just us leaders as pastors saying that to you. This is commanded by God through his scriptures. To be disciple makers. And to be a disciple maker, meaning in some small way or form, you are going to be a leader. How then are you going to be an honorable leader? What does that look like? And the true honorable leader looks pretty much completely opposite of what we've just seen. The kingdom of God is opposite from the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God turns this world upside down. God works through the foolishness of man because God's wisdom is greater than anyone else. Let me start with this. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 4 says this. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So here we have this proverb, and here we see that an excellent wife indeed is a crown, an honor, a glory for her husband. So is this not what Kino Ahasuerus was doing? Is this what not King Ahasuerus Haseiros want? Did he want his wife to be his crown, his glory, his honor? But when Queen Vashi refused him. That brought him shame. And that felt like rottenness in his bones. No wonder he felt angry. But then, if this is Proverbs, how do we reach this point? How does this work out for us as Christians? Because we're not supposed to be doing what we just saw with this king, this queen. How does this play out? We have to read that proverb in context of the rest of scripture. In Ephesians 5.22 it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. In fact, flip to Ephesians 5 just so you see the context of everything. Ephesians 5.22 says, wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Submit to them, obey them, listen to them. Now, how does this play out with what we just seen in Esther? Well, we have to read verse 22 in context. So we have to read verse 21. Verse 21 says this is for all Christians that we are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That is every single one of us here must be must have an attitude of submission. Husbands Submitting to your wives. Wives submitting to your husbands. All of us here submitting to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. There's an attitude of submission for all of us. And so in verse 22, we see that being played out. Wives, submit to your husband. Where does it say that husband should submit to your wives? Well, in verse 25... It doesn't exactly say this, but it says this. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, for her. Here we see an aspect of love. Husband, love your wives to a point where you're willing to sacrifice yourself, willing to humble yourself, willing to bring yourself to a point where you're serving your wives in other words cast aside husbands are to cast aside their needs cast aside their desires cast aside their want for glory so that they can serve their wives here we see husbands submitting to their wives not necessarily in authority but submitting in service. Christians submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus here calls us to be disciple makers. And as disciple makers, we must then be servants. I know I'm saying all this right now with this husband and wife analogy. And I know only counselors here are married. So how does this relate to you guys? Because as disciple makers, we are called to be servants. We are called to be servants who are out there to love others. And the way we are to love others is to serve them, to submit to them, to humble ourselves, to have that submissive attitude before them, before others, to serve them and to love them, to submit to the authority of Christ, and to love others through service. Jesus calls you all to be this. Whether you're married or not, we are all called to be disciple makers. We are all called to show love to others and seek no glory for yourself. What does that look like? What does that look like for you on your campuses? What does that look like for you in this fellowship? Let me give you some examples. Maybe you can take a friend out for lunch, for a meal, and pay for them. Service. Maybe you can offer to drive someone. Ian, you can do that now. (laughs) (coughs) Drive them back and forth. From school, back here, back to school. That's service to one another. A few weeks ago, I, I don't know exactly what happened to them, but we had some freshmen from Cal Poly who are dorming at Cal Poly, and they came here and visited our church. But the way they came to our, camp, to our church campus here is because they reached out to us, and eventually we connected them to Alex, and Alex picked them up and brought them here. <clears throat> I mean, think about what we can do with that. Think about the service we can do for other people. Think about the people who are dorming on campus who moved in from out of town. They're looking for a church and they need rides because they're not from around this area. How do you serve them? How do you love them? One really small practical way is to simply drive them. Pick them up and take them to church. Service. Humbling yourself even though it's inconvenient to serve and love others. Maybe it's taking time out of your busy study life to help tutor someone else because they're struggling in class. and You don't care about the competition in class because it's not about you and your grades. It's about serving others. You're willing to tutor and help someone in class and work with them and build that relationship. Service looks like Having a consistent Bible reading schedule and prayer life. Because as we are disciple makers, we recognize that we cannot make disciples off our own skill and strength. There is no personal glory that comes from making disciples for ourselves. But we are indeed weak and we need Christ to empower us. Serving others is having a consistent scripture life, a consistent prayer life, and having that be evident your life so that when others come to you and and ask you how you're so wise and and stable and mature it's because it's because of christ and you point them to christ who deserves all the glory it's not because you're stronger than them it's because of christ you depend on christ that's serving Do you guys realize how much your own personal walks matters to the rest of the world? In some small way, what happened between the king and queen at the royal court does indeed reflect off to the rest of the kingdom. Your personal life reflects off to everyone around you. This is what it means to be honorable disciple makers, to have true honor. Again, it is not honor that you achieve for yourself. It's honor that other people give you because they see. They see your love. They see your humility. And they see that Christ is in you. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 to 28 says this. You know that the rulers, right? rulers of the Gentiles, like King Hasperos, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, you Christians, you disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever should be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right there. Right there is what the kingdom of God looks like compared to the kingdom of this world. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and in his service he gave his life. Up. And Jesus Christ indeed did that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins because before God we are just rags of filth and dirt we had no value, no worth and Christ took that away his blood covered all that up So that when we stand before the throne of God, his righteousness gives us the honor, the value, the worth, the glory that we don't deserve, but we indeed have now because of Christ. That that is amazing. That's amazing that the worth and the glory and the honor that we long for and yearn for in this life, the value, the worth for people to look upon us and say that we are worthy, all that that we're seeking for from others, from man, we gain in Christ because he died on the cross for us. That is the greatest news we can hear. And that is the greatest news. That we can bring to people who long for the same thing. The good news is that our filthiness are washed away. Our shame, our guilt is washed away. And Christ's glory becomes ours. And that is the most honorable reward that can ever be given, given to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all of this. We thank you, Lord, for your Son who died on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the glory that we receive. That is not ours, but is from you. And so, God, we, we can only respond and worship back to you, Father. We can only respond back with gratitude, with humility, with thankfulness. Lord, thank you for such a gift. And a gift that can empower us and enable us to be truly honorable disciple-makers. And so, Father, may we take that treasure that we have in Christ, take that treasure and share it with the rest of the world, and show them that they can stop looking for honor and glory from anywhere else, and they can glory indeed in the cross of Christ. Lord, pray for all of us here that we will take that truth to hearts. And we will have that truth be the defining truth of our life. So Lord, may all praise and honor and glory go to you. May all credit go to you. Because you are indeed the true king on the earth. And you deserve all of it. Thank you, God, for being our Lord, being our king, and being our savior. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.